The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. Glory Glory to to you, Lord Christ. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form, like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Praise Praise be be to you, Lord Christ. Christ. Good morning again, everyone, and thank you for being here with us in worship. Let me pray for us. Father, I do pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable to you right now through Jesus Christ, your son. We pray in his name. Amen. Well, as we've already said, it's the season of epiphany. And if you're not familiar with that word, it simply means to manifest or to reveal, even to unveil and to bring to light. And this is a season which is about making more widely known that which has largely been hidden. And because that's what we see in Jesus's life in the gospels, Uh, it progresses along and much along the lines of the church calendar. Whereas at Advent, we wait and we anticipate his coming. And then at Christmas, we celebrate his coming. And then now in Epiphany, we see, we watch him be more fully, completely unveiled to us so that we understand more fully who he is and why it is that he came to us. And in this season, we're going to focus on the book of Philippians, which I've chosen for a couple of reasons. One is I think that our church is in a similar place or a similar state as to the church of Philippi when Paul wrote to them. As you might've heard and and listened as Bill read just a moment ago, it was a faithful church. It was a a healthy church. It was a church that, that Paul delighted in. There were no massive issues, no major moral issues or theological problems. It wasn't like Corinth. In Corinth, there was a man sleeping with his mother-in-law. Paul had to write to them about that. In Galatia, there there was this portion of the church that was trying to force everyone, even the Gentiles who were not circumcised, to be circumcised. There were no problems like that here. Paul delights in this church. They were not a church in crisis. And thankfully, neither are we as a church. But that's not always been the case. In fact, when I last preached on this book 11 years ago, we were in crisis. Our founding senior pastor was on leave, a leave of absence, and many people were leaving the church at the time along with him. I was not the senior pastor. I was the interim. I was much younger, 11 years younger, 35. My family was younger. And my boys were, were, were very little. We were still enacting the, the Christmas story and the Epiphany story every year in full costume. Jake was always a wise man. I was the angel Gabriel. Alyssa was Mary. Gage was always a shepherd. And Pal, who was only two and a half at the time, was always Herod perfectly typecast as any two and a half year old would be making us bow down before us and always trying to stab baby Jesus with a sword. Somehow swords always entered into our reenactment. And the point is, is that 11 years ago, things were so very different for us as a church. And I think now that the, that we are where we are, thankfully the book of Philippians is much more appropriate and, and even necessary for us because Paul doesn't say stop that. He doesn't say change this or change that. He says press on. He says, stand firm. Primarily what he says is rejoice. Five different times he uses the word joy. Nine different times the word rejoice, mostly as a command. So 14 times in four chapters, that is Paul's message. It is the message to rejoice. And that's the second reason why I chose this book for us right now, because joy is difficult. 
Joy is always difficult in this world. It's always elusive, but maybe more so now than it has been in a number of years, given everything that we've endured as a culture, as a country, throughout the pandemic, with all the divisiveness that's transpiring in our culture right now. But even more beyond that, maybe for you personally, this year, you're beginning a new year, but nothing is very new for you. It doesn't feel very new. Your child is still hurting. Your marriage is still weakening. Your health frightens you. Your body embarrasses you. You hate your job. Your faith flickers at best. And if that's true of you, you need to know that joy is still available. Paul's call to you is still to rejoice. You have to ask yourself if you believe that that's possible or if you even know what joy is or why it is that joy is possible for you. So two points this morning, one imprisonment, and then secondly, partaking. First of all, imprisonment. This is the theme that begins this letter, this letter of joy. It's somewhat ironic beginning the New Testament letter of joy with imprisonment. He mentions that he's in prison four different times in verse seven, then again, verse 13, then again, verse 14, then again, verse 17, threaded throughout these opening paragraphs. We know he's in prison. It seems strange to begin a letter this way. He's going to talk about joy, but it makes more sense if we understand that this letter in many ways is a thank you note. You see the word partnership in verse five? This is a Greek word, koinonia. If you've been around the church for a while, it's probably a word that you've heard at some point. We'll come back to it throughout our time in the book of Philippians. And it's a hard word to translate in English. We don't have one word that really captures its full meaning. Sometimes it's translated fellowship, other times partnership like here, other times participation, but those are parts of the meaning. Really, it means a complete sharing in everything, complete sharing in all things, whether good or bad, whether it's, whether it's good and it comes to you, you share in it with someone else. Whether it's bad, it comes to them, you share in it. Whatever is theirs is yours and vice versa. You share one life. This word has covenantal overtones. I always tell you, especially on baptism Sundays, that a covenant is a relational bond so all-encompassing that you enter into it and you share one life. That's what baptism is. It's entry into a shared life. That shared life, according to Paul, is koinonia. And Paul's overjoyed here with the Philippians because his koinonia with them has extended to his imprisonment because they're paying for it, literally. You you need to know that in the ancient world, in ancient Roman society, there weren't lots and lots of big prisons like we have now. Many of the prisons were done under house arrest and the accused had to pay for that house arrest. They had to pay for the rent, had to pay for the room and board for them and for whatever Roman centurion or soldier that was there watching them, oftentimes chained to them. And Paul is overjoyed here because this church hasn't abandoned him at his lowest and weakest point, like many other people have. You notice he's not just lamenting his imprisonment here. He's also lamenting many people who have abandoned him, particularly the Christians in Rome. They've not only turned their back upon him, they're taking advantage of him at this lowest of points. They're trying to discredit him and to gain a greater influence and following for themselves among these, the Roman Christians in the small fledgling Roman church. So they've turned on him. His most vulnerable point, Paul's all alone, all alone in prison in Rome until this guy from Philippi shows up, Epaphroditus. We'll talk about him later, but he shows up. He has letters from the church at Philippi and he has money to pay for his imprisonment and to pay for his defense. And now Paul knows because Epaphroditus has shown up that he's not alone anymore. He's no longer alone in his suffering. 
And many of you know what it's like to be alone. You even know some of you what it's like to have someone or people turn on you and abandon you and even take advantage of you like Paul here when he's at his lowest point, when you were at your lowest point. Because that's the story of your marriage. And now divorce is somewhat of a prison for you. Or you're single and you've always wanted to be married. You've seen friend after friend, even roommate after roommate married, engaged, then married, and then they move away, leaving you all alone. For others of you, it's been a friend. You don't know what happened. You don't know what changed. You don't know why they no longer treated you or welcomed you as a friend. For others of you, as your parent, your parent, your mom, your dad, they, they simply weren't like a parent should be to you. They didn't love you. They didn't care for you. And you feel trapped now in the anger and the insecurity that that old relationship colors all new relationships with. There are so many ways to be imprisoned in this world, darkened as it is and as we are by sin. So many ways. Even an inordinate drive for success or for acclaim or respect or an inordinate drive and concern about how people look at you. It's called vanity. You're just concerned with how you look or how you think people look upon you and see you. Alyssa and I are in the middle of a Hulu series, a TV series called Dope Sick. Are y'all familiar with this? Any of you heard of it or watching it? We're only watching it in small bits because it's not the most uplifting of shows. It's a story of the opioid epidemic over the last 20 years in our country and also the Sackler family's responsibility and involvement in it because of their company, Pardue Pharma. Michael Keaton stars in it, and his character is probably the saddest of all of the various characters because he's a doctor in a small coal mining town in rural Kentucky, and he begins by innocently, unknowingly, prescribing this new drug, Oxycontin. And then his patients, of course, become addicted, but then he gets hurt and he begins taking it. He becomes addicted. Then he begins working with his patients in order to obtain it illegally. And you think that he's hit rock bottom when he goes into surgery high one day and his hands are so shaking, his mind is so clouded that what's supposed to be a small incision on this patient's thigh turns into a massive gash because he's, he's digging around in this man's thigh because he's so high and everything's so off with him. That's not the, the rock bottom for him. It's, he sinks even lower, such as the breadth and the depth of his imprisonment to this. 500,000 people in the U.S. have died because of this from 1999 to 2019. There's, there's been three waves of opioid addiction. It started with Oxycontin, then it went to heroin, and now it's fentanyl. And this third wave is the worst. In the first year of the pandemic, 96,000 people died. 500,000 for 20 years, 96,000 in one year of the first year of the pandemic. Because the pandemic itself has been a prison for so many. And so what is it for you right now? Is it something? Is there something that you feel held by, imprisoned by? You especially need to know that joy is still available to you. And here's how. Point two, partakers. Paul does something very subtle here, but remarkable. What he does is he bookends every reference to his imprisonment with the word joy. All four references bookended by joy. So verse four, he begins the passage speaking about joy. And then in verse 18, he ends our passage with a double usage of the word. And the last time that he uses it, it sounds like a resolution. Many of you probably made resolutions this past week. Here's Paul's. He says, yes, and I will rejoice. He's re- resolving to seek joy in the face of what holds him. Whatever it is for you, he's, he's resolving to, to seek joy in the face of his prison, what limits him, restriction, and confines him. 
And how can he do that? How can he make this resolution and why would he do it now? It's because of one word. It goes back to one word, this word in verse seven, partakers. You see that there? The word partakers? It's a form of the word koinonia. It has a prefix added to it. It's literally soon koinonos or sharers with or partakers with or participants with. Participants in what? Partakers in what with Paul? What does he say? What's the word? Very simply, grace. In other words, the kindness of God. Partakers in the the forgiveness and the reconciliation with God. Partakers of the very life of God, his presence, even his joy. And that's it. That's the key. Because what really is joy? What is true joy? C.S. Lewis asks that question. Can't begin a new year without a reference to C.S. Lewis here at All Saints this morning. So here it is. In fact, for Lewis, this was the question that led him to become a Christian. He entitled his conversion memoir, Surprised by Joy, because he was surprised that he became a Christian. He called himself the most reluctant convert in all of England. He was shocked. He was surprised by God, surprised by joy. And for Lewis, joy is similar, but very different from happiness and pleasure. He says, for joy, joy for him and he understood is an unsatisfied desire, which itself is more desirable than any other satisfaction. Happiness and pleasure, once you experience them, you'll want them more. So true, so too for joy, but joy is more unquenchable. It's more desirable because its source is beyond this world. That's what he learned. His, its source is God himself. Now I'm gonna nerd out on you for a second here, so pay attention, you ready? C.S. Lewis also wrote this other essay called Meditations in a Tool Shed. He had this experience one day where he was in a dark shed and a sunbeam came through into the dark through a crack above the door. And as Lewis writes, he says that in the dark, he could see the beam of light, but he couldn't see things by the beam. Have you ever had that experience? We're in a dark room and the door is barely open and a, and a shaft of light or a beam of light comes in and, and you can see the beam of light, but you can't see things by that beam. Lewis says that that's very, very similar to so many of our experiences in this world where we experience happiness or pleasure, whether it be a new relationship with someone, a friend, a lover, or a wonderful meal or promotion at work, some delight in your marriage after years and years of faithfulness, whatever it may be, all of those are good things. But what they are is moments of happiness and pleasure. They're like looking at the beam of light. And Lewis says, if you want to know joy, you can't look at the beam. You have to look along the beam or through the beam to see more and far beyond. It's to see so many other things, greater things than beyond that. He writes, when I did that, instantly the whole picture vanished. And I saw no tool shed, no beam. Instead, I saw framed in the irregular cranny at the top of the door, green leaves moving on the branches of a tree outside. And beyond that, 90 odd million miles away, the sun. You hear what he's saying? He's saying we must not stop at our moments of of temporary happiness or fleeting pleasure. We must look at them, but then look along them to their source, which is none other than God himself, which is none other than the koinonia that God has within himself, the joy that God has within himself, the delight that God the Father has over the Son that's so real, and and the delight and the joy that God the Son has over the Father that's so real that it is the Holy Spirit. 
to look along all of our tastes of happiness and pleasure to their source of real joy. In other words, everything good in life, everything good in life that you've known and that you've never known, that you've always wanted, even things like a beautiful sunset, expensive bottle of wine, a goal accomplished, a newborn baby that you've held for the very first time. You remember that? Or seeing your child married or a conversation that changed your life, a conversation with a dear friend, all of those moments of happiness, all of those tastes of momentary pleasure, they're like beams of light shining in a dark tool shed, inviting you to follow them to their source, their signposts. Follow them, following them to the source where you find true joy, where you find God himself and his grace and his presence and his life, and you partake of it. So the call is to look along the beam. And that's what David Brooks did. Do y'all know who David Brooks is? Conservative, political, and cultural commentator, uh, uh, op-ed writer for the New York Times. He also, he became famous probably 25 years or so ago when he wrote Bobos in Paradise. Book's still very applicable. There are many Bobos in Paradise here in Austin, so you maybe ought to check it out. But about seven years ago, he, or several years ago, he became a Christian. And this is what he said. This is why he became a Christian. He looked along the beam. He says, about seven years ago, I realized that my secular understanding was not adequate to the amplitude of life that I have experienced. He said, there were extremes of joy and pain, spiritual fullness and spiritual emptiness that were outside the normal material explanation of things. I was gripped by the conviction that people I encountered were not skin bags of DNA, but they had souls. They had essences with no size or shape. And that gave them infinite value and dignity. The conviction that people had souls led to the possibility for me that there was some spirit who breathed souls into them. And what finally did the trick was glimpses of infinite goodness. Secular religions are really good at identifying some evils like oppression and building a moral system against them. Divine religions are primarily oriented to an image of pure goodness, of pure loving kindness, of holiness. In periodic glimpses of radical goodness in other people and in sensations of the transcendent, I felt, as Wendell Berry put it, knowledge crawl over my skin. The biblical stories from Genesis all the way through Luke and John became living presences in my life. These realizations transformed my spiritual life. Awareness of God's love, participation in his grace, awareness that each person is made in the image of God, they led me to faith. And faith offered me a new way of being and a new ultimate allegiance. What he did was he looked along the beam. He didn't stop with worldly pleasures. He didn't stop with temporary happiness. He followed them to their source. He also didn't stop with all of his imprisonments or his struggles or his sufferings either. Prior to becoming a Christian, he endured a very difficult, painful, life-changing divorce. It was part of what led him to this. And friends, some of you are beginning this year in deep sorrow. That's where you are right now. Or others of you are beginning this year in the malaise of boredom or apathy because the pleasures of life are just not what they used to be. And the happiness that you have known has waned. And if that is you, you need to know that you can know joy without circumstantial happiness or any sort of pleasure. Paul does. That's what he's speaking of here. You can actually know joy in the midst of whatever imprisons you, whatever it may be. Because of God in his grace, your imprisonment can become a placement, 
a placement where incredible good happens, eternal good happens for you and for others. That's what Paul says. That's what he says in verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. It's turned out for good for me and for others. He says the same thing in verse 14. He sounds like Joseph in our Old Testament reading. Do you know the story of Joseph? Do you remember that story? Joseph was the second youngest son to Jacob. Jacob was a wealthy, powerful man, a patriarch, and he ruined his son. He spoiled Joseph. And his brothers hated Joseph because he was so spoiled. He was daddy's favorite. And so they wanted to kill him. But instead of killing them, they sold him into slavery in Egypt. And while a slave, he rose to prominence until one day his master's wife tried to seduce him. He resisted. She said that he molested her and he was put in prison. But then again, in prison, he rose to prominence. This time he rose all the way to second in command of the entire Egyptian empire. And then he found himself selling corn during a famine to his brothers who had imprisoned him and enslaved him. They didn't know it was him. And then he unveiled himself. He revealed himself. It was an epiphany of sorts for them. And he was reconciled with his father. Then his father died. And then we come to the passage that we read this morning where his brothers are afraid that now Joseph will seek his revenge on them for their cruelty to him. And he says, no, 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 no. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Sounds very much like Paul. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. How could they say that? How could they say that? Not knowing temporary pleasure, not knowing fleeting happiness. How could they say the only way they could say that is if they knew joy, something beyond this world, something whose source is beyond this world. In fact, those words are really just Jesus's words spoken through them because Jesus wasn't imprisoned. He was falsely accused, but he was, he was really put upon a cross. That was his prison. And from that prison, from the cross, what did he say? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Those are the ultimate words of you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. God meant the cross for our good, for our good. As to be the means and the way by which we're forgiven, reconciled with him, but also to open a pathway to true joy, even in this life, regardless of what it is we might face. That means you can know joy this morning. You can be partakers of God's grace. So will you partake of joy this morning? Because it's available to you. In fact, if you are baptized, you've been baptized into joy. You've been baptized into the grace and the presence and the life of God. So look along the beams of light in whatever darkness you find yourself. Look along those beams to their source and know joy. It's available to you. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray, not as we always pray. We often pray for happiness. We often pray for pleasure. But this morning we pray for joy. We pray that we would know joy despite maybe not knowing those things. And so, Father, because of Jesus, give to us that which we ultimately need, which is yourself. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.